Hi, listener. You've found yourself in my world. At least for the remainder of this episode. My name is Hugo Solomon. And this is what I'm calling The Depths. It's a podcast I've created to help me chronicle deeper understanding of myself and the people around me through the use of what I find to be the world's most powerful medium, that being stories. And I've never thought of myself as being an incredible storyteller, but I'm going to do my best for you because I hope that with each of these words that I'm telling you now, I'll be telling them to myself. Unfortunately for you, though, only I will be the one to know if any of that is to any avail. And I've always really struggled with introductions um, because I think that if you're going around in a circle and you're doing like, what's your favorite superhero or what's the top frozen food item you would choose at Trader Joe's, that one was really specific, I admit. You know, whenever you're doing these introductions, there's always this kind of ego that you're trying to transmit to the audience and you're aware that you yourself are trying to tell a story about where you've been from or where you where you come from but in the meantime you have an audience you have people listening to you and that comes with some sort of obligation to them to come up with something exciting you know like if i were to come up with some superhero or superpower it would probably be to be able to sit still like really calmly for a long time, you know, but that's not as exciting as shooting lasers or lasers out of your nipples or whatever else it is that the youths fantasize about these days. It's probably not laser nipples, but um, if I'm going to begin to sort of unpack why it is that I thought it was a necessary endeavor to start a podcast because as far as what I know it's not easy <laughs> doesn't seem easy at all you've got all sorts of things to manage and your ego is definitely one of them but I think what I want to get across in this first introductory episode is just a little bit about about me, about about Hugo Solomon, about things that keep me going, the things that keep me up at night, and the things that keep me making things. You know, because I'm 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 a person that makes things. So 
we're doing this like broad top down kind of description of myself um 19 it's biological age can't really affect that um i'm i'm jewish it's a spiritual tradition i was quasi indoctrinated into in my younger years um i'm gay slash queer uh another biological component can't really control um blue eyes same there uh brown hair that turns slightly more golden in the summers much to the jealousy of my peers um or at least i tell myself uh a decently athletic frame um from like a decade-ish of team sports um and more recently working out whenever it feels <laughs> appropriate um i'm decently tall i'm five nine but i see myself as short i'd say most days um pretty skinny but I see how chubby I am pretty much every day. Uh, I have acne every once in a while. I have like 12 face creams. I'd make a TSH and freak out um, to, to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I describe myself as a mess. This is kind of like organized chaos or like a slowly unfurling natural disaster or a tornado skipping across a field, tossing a couple stray cows every which way. Um, I, I do believe that, you know, that I, I might describe myself as a mess, but I represent, I think in my mind, kind of like the, the sort of like abstract beauty of a, of a collage. You know, you take all these pieces and they don't necessarily make sense together, but the overall effect is pleasing. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, I, I would say collage. I think mosaic has too many racial connotations. And I'm extremely white, forgot to mention. Um, so maybe not a mosaic, but yeah. I'd, I'd be happy with a collage. And some more about myself is I was the only one, my entire family that was born in, in Washington state, specifically in Seattle, which is sort of where the entirety of my present family is kind of relocated or founded its home base. My mom was born in, in Europe. She was born in France, Toulouse, which is the capital of the South. It's a place with old streets and churches and pastries and at least one Hermes store. There's some old fountains, motorcycle roads, at least. I mean, I don't think they're called motorcycle roads, but they look 
only large enough to drive a motorcycle down. So I'm, I'm going to call them motorcycle roads. Um, an old arboretum in the middle of the city. A canal. A couple schools. Lots of life. Especially around the wintertime. There's lots of coming and going, people buying things, people enjoying each other. It just smells good, except for the, the sewers. Don't, don't smell the sewers. Uh, my dad is from Northern California, um, and I haven't really spent too much time in Northern California, so I don't really think I can give a an accurate poetic rendition of it, but... I think that I mean, each of my parents have life circumstances that supersede any distinguishing characteristic around the city or place in which they grew up. I think those circumstances are far more important. But what I do know about my dad was that he was caught between two commanding older siblings and one scrappy younger sibling. And he didn't really know where he fit in. Um, and as he grew up, uh, his brother engaged in all of these exciting, dramatic pursuits. And he felt compelled to follow him. And his mom pushed him to follow him. Whereas he found that unlike his brother, like capital assets, stuff like that wasn't really his forte. And he didn't have the the guts or the whatever it was that allowed my uncle to unabashedly make money. As my dad sort of honestly hadn't really had this conscience. He he wanted to do what he wanted to do and moving money around for the profit of others wasn't really I don't know. It didn't really align with him. Nevertheless, he found himself in the same city as my mom at least 24 years ago. Uh, let's say 27 years ago. Give it, give it some time before my oldest sister. They worked for the same company and my dad was very smart and attractive, kind of like a old Abercrombie model. My mom actually was a child model, but is beautiful in that kind of portrait that you see in a museum in Montreal or Paris or something. Someone that carries so much power so much effort behind all of their motions. And it's very delicate, but it's it's strong. It's very strong. And it's no surprise why I, my dad fell in love with that. It's half of why I love my mom. But no, they. My mom was born in different country my dad was born in two states south and 
two of my sisters were born in New Hampshire, uh, Concord. And my oldest sister, my half-sister, it's actually her birthday today. I believe she was born in, in New York. I can't be sure. But... employment or the fates, my family found itself in Seattle, Washington, which in my opinion is a place both unlike California or France or New Hampshire or most, or most other places. It's a city that has a reputation of rain and cold, but it's actually less rainy than most places. It's nestled between two bodies of water and two mountain ranges, but it's still right on the coast. So you get the smell of the sea if you go close enough to the water, or the smell of the mountains if you go further, far enough from the city. The mountains create a rain shadow, which I suppose is just a creative or scientific way of describing the abysmal grayness that permeates most of the skyline and horizon for parts of the year. But that same rain shadow in Seattle, same reputation that I explained just now, belies a certain appreciation of the sunny days, certain fondness of wearing a sweater and walking around in the cold. It's a, it's a contrast, not really of, of four distinct seasons like the East Coast kind of likes to brag about, but it's a type of climate that forces you to notice every day because you don't know what each one's going to bring, and you have to appreciate it in just the right way in order to savor the taste of that day and the taste of the weather. I don't really think it's anything I've ever been able to do anywhere else, though admittedly, <laughs> I've only lived in a handful of other places. But... Regardless, I was the only one in my family that was born here. And I feel like that kind of makes me an outsider or an insider. In a family of transients, I'm the only local individual. In a family of voyagers, I was the only one that was sedentary. In a family of birds fleeing nests, I was the egg that hatched too late. Or maybe maybe I hatched right on time or whatever the hell hatch means in the context of a human life. That's my stomach. It's a little late. But I think that sort of set me apart even more than perhaps the four age the four years that separate me and my closest sister in age. 
I'm the one that never moved. Or at least I wasn't for a long time. You know? And maybe that has led me to appreciate the mundanity of what it is that the majority of, I think, life is made up with, with, you know, those little moments of being at home and that just aggressive familiarity you have when you look around a space and recognize it as your own, or that feeling of recognition that you know is based off years of seeing before you could remember what you saw. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like to be home sometimes. But my story is a little more complicated than that. Um, And I think that's why I set off about making this podcast in the first place. For whatever reason, or reasons I can describe in infinite detail, and I'm sure I will. Don't worry about that. I discovered at some age that I had an emptiness in me. I had a darkness. No, I wouldn't. I think giving it a color makes it too, makes it seem too tangible or too other because this is, it's a very internal feeling. It's, it's deep down. It's mushy. It's, it's, it's red. It's calloused. It's a scar. It's a scab. It's a covering. It's a cut. It's your inside and it's what no one else sees, but everyone feels, especially you. It's the deepest, darkest part of the night that you feel in the middle of the day. It's a shiver. It's recognition. It's uh, kind of like deja vu, but within your own lifetime. It's, a, it's an emptiness. It's a, it's, a, it's a hole. And for whatever reason, um, or maybe not for whatever reason, but out of necessity, and out of the sheer knowledge that it was there, I set about filling that hole. And I dedicated myself to the filling of that absence, that vacancy, something that needed to be filled. It's a pit in the sand I needed to fill with more sand. But it seemed as if, as I found, I mean, trying to fill these holes that the more I tried to fill them, the deeper they got dug. For example, after I finished my last year of boarding school, overcome by loneliness, I pursued sex like a yellow jacket to a piece of meat in the sun left out too long. I pursued it like red to a sunset. I bled it. I craved it. I I wanted it every night and every 
second I envisioned myself leaving a man's arms, I wanted to be within the embrace of another one's. No amount of time of being held was good enough for me. I wanted more. I wanted him. I wanted his body. I wanted the smell of him like, like age and knowledge and sandalwood. And all of them made me cry. Every single one. I kept a list of all of their names, and I hope that the knowledge of being able to list them will remember what it felt like to call out for them would be able to confer some sense of safety or security, but it just made the loneliness deeper. Because after the fact, driving away, feeling that lack of feeling, after the high had diminished and the oxytocin had subsided, my arms were empty beside the steering wheel or some blankets. Maybe an e-cigarette. That's what I was into at the time. And in those moments, it felt like I was a character in a book. Like my day was going to come like these nights of loneliness and aloneness would materialize into someone better incapable of taking that ugliness and telling me it was beautiful already and hugging me and hugging it, all of us holding each other. I desperately, I desperately wanted that moment to come. And I mean, I wish I could say that's what I was pursuing. On those nights, hurtling through the dark like some volatile shard of Myself, sexy and clean and scrubbed down and hairless, lithe, submissive, powerful, commanding, specific. On those nights, I I wasn't I wasn't me I wasn't I wasn't Hugo I was that whole. Where that hole consumed me in that moment or those moments. And all I could do is assume the passenger seat and watch it try to take as much as it could before I shoved it back down again. it takes some kind of like self-indulgence to want to do your own podcast like there are so many podcasts in the world why is my voice more important than any of them and why am I not spending this time listening to the voices of wiser people 
figure out what I should be doing with my time. But I think that, you know, at some point it's not, it's not optional. And at some point you know that what you're doing is essential, not necessarily for, for anybody else, that's the, that's the plus side, but for yourself. And if no one listens, you'd still be happy with it because it's a, it's a production of you. It's a production of, it's a production of what you've been into. And I think there's something, there's something special about podcasts. I've tried to make videos. I've tried to make, uh, like videos with music and stuff and have these clips and found audio. I I love found audio. Uh, But I think... You know, podcasts, it it leaves something up to the imagination. And it creates a space for you to walk into. Or sit into. And I think I sort of grew up savoring those spaces. You know, you can just... You don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to be doing anything. You could literally be drinking coffee at 10 a.m. in the kitchen on a Sunday. And the radio is playing in the background. And, like, sort of consciously and sort of subconsciously, you just shift your awareness into the radio. And when you're in that place, you can... You know you're there because you see the story in front of you. Um, and it's like, it's, it's similar to reading, if, if, if that's the thing you're into. But I think whereas reading is like watching a movie sometimes, like good writing, you can just watch, watch a movie in front of you while you're reading. I think a good podcast is, I don't know, you can feel, you can feel it. You can feel a conversation. You can feel the flow of energy between those people. Um, And I didn't, I don't know, I never really saw myself as the type of person that would make a podcast. But here we are. To wrap up this first episode, um, I wanted to end with a story that I wrote a while ago. It was a vignette-style piece that I wrote for an English class in 11th grade. And I think it was one of the first times that I tapped into the, the strength and the power that kind of lies within these vacancies because for all of the pain and strife that they have caused me and the time that I've spent trying to fill them, there's something slow and powerful there. It takes a really particular kind of writing to draw it out, to show it in the light of day. So this is an excerpt from kind of memoir I wrote uh, in the style of a different book by an author, Chilean author by the name of Alejandro Zambra. 
called multiple choice. Um, and the structure of this reading will, or this essay will sort of reveal itself as it goes. It's a sequence of vignettes. And at the end, you're supposed to order them in the way that makes the most sense. But I think you'll find that that form really isn't as important as the substance that came across in the process. So without further ado, here is an excerpt from a memoir that I wrote, A Shitty Stolen Test. Stop. Please read the following instructions carefully before proceeding. If you mess up at this point, you can't blame me. The world isn't as simple as circling the right answer and moving on, though I'm sure you'd like it to be. So keep filling in the bubbles that mean nothing and never will, and those textbooks filled with information serving only as a form of evaluation for a nameless figure you'll never meet. And acting like what you're doing actually matters. It's funny like that, you know? They make you feel like the difference between A and C is huge, but they're both wrong. And be sure to carefully mark your irrelevant answers carefully. Part B. Read the following passages of the life of some unfortunate or incredibly fortunate young, dramatic, tortured youth and structure them in the most logical or most illogical sense. Time moves backwards if you don't pay attention, and it's not like repeating yourself the same answers over and over again until you start feeling anxious and you have to change your filled-in circles, but being right the entire time. Cheating only proved you were wrong, you see, and you just feel worse. Putting a time limit on this won't change anything. One. It's one of your best friend's birthdays, and you're all sitting together in a booth in some Italian restaurant, the girls on one side, the boys, yourself included, on the other. There are two other boys with you, but one of them leaves without president until it's just you and him. As you put your water down, you feel him starting to pay attention to you in an authentic way, like the beginnings of something. Yeah, let's, let's call it that. But 15 minutes later, you're still both talking animatedly. Chatting, becoming discussion, discussion, becoming something more passionate, more real, more expressive until you're staring at him. Only feet apart, but impossibly separate. Two. That's when it happens, you figure. The moment where you knew you'd gone too far. An auditory click in the mind of every gay boy when they know they're stuck to stealing glances at a straight guy who will never 
be able to notice or feel or understand or see them or anything or the truth or any important noun they're blind really it's like finding the best word that fits in there isn't one and that's why i can't move on see it's not just about a one-time thing that you can move on from or deal with because that's not what you were ever good at or even able to do. So now you're left writing erased poetry, longing for a feeling of honest validation that will either save or destroy you. Three. And so you fall in love with a boy you know will never love you back. And you steal time from him when he's not looking at you and despite the pain of knowing that he'll never notice you, you still find joy in smiling at him out the side of the boat at crew practice. And though the distance blurs his visage, you swear you see him smiling back. The days get brighter, longer, fuller when you see him there staring back. It feels hopeful despite the barrier of sexuality and your mind begins to weave the complicated web of a future with someone else. An unanswered yes, you rationalize, will always be greater than a broken no. Your heart flutters like a teenage girl or boy or person in love, and his body language lost in translation through the pages of your French textbook and the feet of water seems to finally make sense. Four. You're lifeguarding alone now on a quiet Sunday afternoon with too much and not enough to do. There's contradictions keeping you going at this point. Just watching the people swim laps and not drowning, but drowning themselves, albeit infinitely slowly, robbing the water of tranquility like a rational function nearing a massive indistinguishable number called infinity. You're just a point on the axis, a limit always getting closer and closer to the moment where you flip that impossible barrier, the days stretching into years as you see him walk up to you. What are you up to? He asks, his demeanor quiet, kind, beautiful, smiling. Sitting here and looking pretty, you respond, feeling everything but inadequate next to him in embarrassment washing over you like a cold shower. He laughs almost and walks away, and a part of you leaves with him, following his every moment and movement along the edge of the pool before falling in. Five. You're walking side by side with him, a boy slightly taller than you and stronger too, but quieter more of an imprint than a shadow. You like him desperately, though he could never love you in the same way. He couldn't. You take your hand out of your pocket. He wouldn't. You look over at him until he notices. <sighs> He's beautiful. You both smile not for you. And he smiled desperately at the ground in front of you and you try not to imagine the possibilities of opening your hand to his. It's so close now. Your fingertips 
brush his once, twice. It won't. And the glass shatters in a blaze of action as you grasp his hand tenderly first, then firmly, apprehensively, and his hand squeezes back, rubbing his thumb over the cracks from growing practice that had borne deep into the messy patchwork of skin and callus, and you both look up and smile at each other, holding tighter, caring. It feels right. Finally... It feels impossibly right, and your world implodes. Six. He's holding you now, his arm around your waist, feeling masculine in a feminine way and like a man in a woman's way, and it seems as if the world has corrected around your two linked bodies. The stars helpless to obey the pure truth of the moment, the world gravitating to your stolen moment, mutual together and perfect at last. But as you look over your shoulder, you see the other one, the one from before. Before when you couldn't be with your best friends because you felt so stuck and when you realized that depression doesn't wasn't just something for your sister to use when she would kick and scream at you for being annoying which still hasn't really gone away, and you were left alone again, quiet tears streaking down your face as your future broke away in a whisper. No, you think it won't be like him. Sure, they might have the same name, but the one from before lost that right when he gave up on trying to live, and this one now, the boy holding you like a new person, he is alive. He is real. Seven. And then you're both walking through the school together, talking about grades and college and all the other things that give you anxiety. And you ask him to change the subject in futility. You fail to talk about anything relevant, too close to the moment you've been waiting for for weeks now. Imagining what it would feel like as if, if he came close or as close to you as you've always wanted him to leave something permanent. An imprint on your face, a moment you could take and store within your body forever, regardless of the consequences. You asked him, then, taking off your hat. And you could, if you could kiss him. And he answered, with his mouth, reality and imagination and future past tenses blending together for that one moment of perfection, just taking one, then another, not greed, but want driving your body now, hanging on to every molecule, hanging suspended in the air as you kissed his face again and again. You fell asleep smiling that night for the first time in a long time. Eight. Then, the silence. Dripping off the tip of every pencil and homework assignment and gaze and glare and the rain and the sun and water and everywhere went into a perverse grayscale. It would seem as if a no, I'm straight, would be worse than a kiss, but feelings have a way of working to create an eternity 
in a moment, fragile and full of emotion and potential, blissful potential, ready to break at any moment, screaming for closure and losing whatever grip you maintained on the situation. You found a moment where you were sitting with him on the crew bus, but he wasn't there. He was long gone. It seemed as if he was trying to escape out the window. Awkwardness, no longer a possibility. And that's when you knew. You knew then. He didn't have to say it, but you needed to take the words from his mouth like his kiss. You devalued yourself so much that nothing you could say would suffice for an ending that would never end. Nine. In the end, you ended up tracking him down without ever talking to him. You texted an ultimatum to which you knew he'd never respond, and he just showed up. And that's when he said it, but it's impossible for you to continue writing this now without feeling that piece of him. That piece you took from that Thursday night fighting its way to the center of your being, under your hearts, through your lungs, to where your soul should metaphysically reside. It hurts when you see him now. Every moment of hope and joy and affection turned into straight animosity and pain with the three words he told you after that unbearable week of complete silence. Just the three damn words you knew were always coming and hurtling for that same space where you kept that peace. Missiles locking on and flying in on just those three words he told you. Not for me. And it blew your fragile heart into a thousand glass shards. Alone with the sense of finality that you had craved for so long, <laughs> wondering if someone could have, should have stopped you. All of those social rules you had irreparably shattered. Someone's coming out turned into a feeling of secret joy. Someone's impossible desire defying reality. Someone's life raised into dust. You must have gone against some rule. You learned too much too fast, but not one person emailed you to inform you of your suspension. Ten. And after that night in your room, makeup still plastered on your face from the drag show, you feel yourself becoming depressed again. Maybe you always were, but you were unaware, which in some ways might have been better. You don't want to stop yourself because that's how you'll get out in the end. Your shovel, a mark of anger or determination, digging yourself in before your brain decides it's been long enough. The dirt completes you muffling the sounds of pain in his voice until it fades away. It's too ironic to process for you at that moment. It's true. You've gotten precisely what you asked for, and you rushed in, savoring the impossibility, blind, willingly to the consequences. And they say it hurts when you fall in love with the straight boy who can't love you back. 
a blameless failed chemistry experiment they forgot to teach. But they neglect to tell you how unimaginably painful it is when they do. After. You can't cry, but you want to. Something real to look at in the mirror besides that stolen moment. But weeks later, still terrifying how something so small or massive was able to set you off for so long. Weeks gone by now. Suppression of feeling almost like that before. Before. Feeling stuck again and alone again, but home again. At least there, you knew where you were. Your audiobook murmuring quietly in the background as you restructured your world around the one person you'd somehow lost watching him walk away. You have reached the end of the reading section. Please select the most accurate and probably painful progression. Then stop. Just stop for a while and see how a boy grows up in 1,726 words. Option A. After. 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. B. 7, 3, 6, 1, 5, 6, 9, 10. After. 8. C. 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9. D. After, 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 after. E. None of the above. I don't care if that only works in a different section. Just stop. F. It doesn't fucking matter anymore. G. See, this isn't the first time I've written about boys. I'm sure it won't be the last. It felt like a miracle, you know, to getting to have that one Thursday night with him, that boy against all laws of society and nature. But I learned later that some rules aren't meant to be broken. The dean of students told me yesterday that sometimes probation is necessary for students that like to push the boundaries wherever they go. And now I'm furious that no one stopped me. This might not be a legitimate answer, but I swear that I'll try as hard as I can to forget and remember all of this, keeping the living memory buried deep 
and that though time will try to wrench it out, I'll keep this this pain, this saudade, in order to remember that at the end of the day, I will always be the one standing tall. I was seven years old when I got my first pair and I stepped outside and I was like, mama, this air bubble right here is gonna make me fly. I hit the back court. And, when I jumped, and this has I been an episode of so The Depths. I touched the net. Mom, I touched the Depth the is, is the best a podcast life. created, written, and produced by me, Hugh Solomon, and distributed through Anchor. The songs you heard today were Zebra by Beach House and Wings by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. I recommend you check out both the audio was obtained through the free music project and utilized through a creative commons license. If you'd like to leave some feedback or your opinions on the show, uh, feel free to click on the link in the description of the episode uh, to leave a message at Anchor or record an audio message, the voice memos app on your phone or whatever else you have. And send it to me at HugoVictorSolomon at gmail.com. That's H-U-G-O-V-I-C-T-O-R-S-O-L-O-M-O-N at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and be safe, friends. I'm so high.